one of the leaders here at Hope City. It's my privilege to help us today to learn together from the Bible. And um, as, I, as I start talking this morning, I'm really conscious that our world is uh, in a mess, that there are some serious things going on. And I'm not going to address them directly. I'm going to talk much more personally this morning about things going on in our lives, but just don't want you to think that we're unaware that the world is crazy and um, that there's just a whole set of serious challenges. But many of our lives are challenging as well. So I want to ask you this morning anonymously, what is the most serious problem you have just now? What category does your most serious problem live in? If, if I was to ask you, like, what's the top issue in your life? Is it, is it in finances? Is it in health? What's the category? Is it a, a relationship issue? Uh, is, it, is it housing? Like I know housing is a really difficult thing here. Is it, is it work? What's at the top of your mind? Can we get a, just a quick sense where we are as a room? So I know pull out your phone feels like a funny thing to do in church, but pull out your phone and just give me a sense for what category your big problems are. If you're with us online, um, you can join in this as well. Just a word or two. What's the most serious problem in your life just now? At least what category is it in? If you had somebody with a magic wand who could just like fix problems, well, what would you have them fix in your life? What's the issue? If you had a, a magic lamp with a wish-granting genie in it, what sort of wish would you give them? Let me know so we have a sense for where we are. Or we'll just wait awkwardly and it'll be very tense. Or maybe the slider system's not working and uh, there are no answers. There you go. There are 20 people typing. Oh, thank you so much. Everyone did it. Well done, team. It's fascinating to think about the sorts of struggles. I guess week by week when we share prayer requests, one of the amazing things that happens is people um, let us know really significant problems and challenges and struggles in their life. Uh, sometimes you can look at other people and you feel like, Basically, they're okay. Basically, everyone else has their stuff together and they're doing all right. But under the covers, almost everyone is wrestling. Almost everyone is struggling. Almost everyone is facing challenges. What, what a set of challenges. Yeah, mental health, work, finance, relationships, parenting, health, work frustrations, totally. Gmail dysfunction and the, and the, and the Scotland game. So some serious things. And some less serious things. Now, imagine, just imagine with me, there is someone powerful enough to fix anything at all, okay? You've got somebody, Mr. Superfix-It, with like a big S on his chest. And imagine you get to them finally, okay? There's been a long queue because they fix problems. And everyone wants their problems fixed. You get to the front of the queue. You lay out your problem before them. And they listen carefully. They pay attention. They understand the issue in your problem. They, they look like they care with that big S on their chest. It really looks like they're going to help you. They're not asking for money up front or installment payment plans. But when they wave their wand, after you've explained the problem and... Uh, you know, or do whatever it is they do to magic something up. When the fairy dust has settled, they haven't solved your problem at all. But uh, they've been at work on something completely different. Like, say just hypothetically, say my top problem was my job. Say my job just stinks and I really wish it would go away. And, um, you know, it's dragging me down. And I lay that out in front of Mr. Superfix-It, who can fix anything. But when he waves his wand... Right? And the magic sparkles clear. My job is not sorted at all, but instead, I have a newfound commitment to exercise. You're like, that's pretty annoying. 
pretty annoying, right? Unless they knew better what the real issue was. Now, if you are not familiar with the stories of Jesus, perhaps that won't lead you anywhere, but if you do know the stories of Jesus, we're going to look at a famous one today, and it's got important truths for us as we wrestle with these sorts of big problems in our own lives. If you know the story of Jesus well, you might already know or have a hunch for which one it's going to be. And you might think, honestly, that you can just switch off because you know the answers. You've heard it before. It's old hat. You get it already. I, I hear you, but I want to appeal to you to give me a chance because there's some big stuff to think about here. There's quite a long way down to go in this story before we get to the bottom of thinking it through. And I doubt many of us have gotten all the way there and uncovered everything. So we're going to start with a story from the Bible, and it's in Matthew chapter 9, and that's on page 963 in our Blue Bibles, if you've got one of them. And we're going to read the first chunk of chapter 9, and Andrea is reading for me this morning. Thank you very much, Andrea. So chapter 9 uh, on page 973. And last week, we saw Jesus in a full-on demonic showdown. And then he gets rejected by the nearby townsfolk. There's another shock as we pick up the story this week. Actually, there are two. See if you can spot both. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to men. Thanks, Andrea. Perfect slotting. So our writer told us that Matthew had uh, that Jesus had left the town of Capernaum because of the crowds that were kind of building around him, drawn by his powers. And we've been following him through that eventful boat trip across the water with the storm, been following him to the other side. Today, we see Jesus coming back, and he's coming back to Capernaum. And from the other Gospels, we know the moment he gets back to Capernaum, he is mobbed by huge crowds again. And despite those multitudes, despite the crowds, the committed and resourceful group of friends come looking for his power. They come to him in faith for one who's paralyzed. Now, if you were with us a few weeks back, you might remember we looked at the story of a Roman centurion back in chapter 8. Now, it didn't occur to me right away, because I'm not that clever, but as I thought about it a bit more and looked at it, there are a lot of similarities here. See, uh, it's in the same city. Okay, it's a paralyzed friend, again, who's needing help. And Jesus, in that story of the centurion, he singled out the amazing faith of the centurion, the faith that Jesus could heal his paralyzed friend from a distance with just a word. Now, if only these friends had remembered that story, could have saved themselves all the palaver 
of getting their friend to Jesus. See, other gospels tell us they dug through somebody's roof to get into him. And now, it, it doesn't rain as much in Israel as it does here, but still, somebody's digging a man-sized hole in your roof. It's not going to go down very well. It's going to take some faith, right? But, but, but like we saw two weeks ago, we saw Jesus saves and helps even those with little faith. Remember the disciples on the boat? Ah, oh, you've got such little faith. Why are you afraid? But still, he helps them and calms the storm. Here he's at it again. Not the same amazing faith as the centurion. Not a faith that says you can heal at a distance with a word. A faith that digs through the roof and brings the man there. Well, Jesus sees that faith. And even though it's not amazing, he acts in response. And a really quick aside, in case this comes up in Q&A later. If you're wondering about how Jesus sees their faith and does something for that man, how does that work? Well, commentators from Chrysostom to Calvin down the centuries have pointed out when Jesus sees the faith of the group, when he sees their faith, they could easily include that man too. I mean, would he really have cooked up the plan if he didn't have any faith? Would he, would he let himself be carried to Jesus if he didn't have any faith? He could just roll off the mat halfway. So, so there's probably some faith all around is what we're seeing there. Jesus sees their faith, okay? He acts in response. And if you've been around for um, a while at church, it's pretty hard to feel the shock of what happens here. But here's where we run into the first shock this week. After, after everything the friends have done to get this paralyzed man to Jesus, Jesus doesn't fix the problem. He doesn't fix the main problem. Instead, he declares the man's sins are forgiven. Now, first up, it is pretty obvious what the main problem is here, right? It's pretty obvious and what the friends were looking for, even though it doesn't necessarily seem to have been stated. There's no recorded words here. And we know and we've seen that Jesus has the power to fix this class of problems. In this town, in this city, they have seen that Jesus can restore paralyzed people. But just like our Mr. Super Fix It, right, Jesus does the wrong thing. I mean, what good is sins forgiven if you still can't walk? But it's shocking for a second reason as well. Now, Jesus declaring your sins is forgiven. Is Jesus, this new teacher in town, stepping onto God's turf? It's something no religious leader of the time would ever have done, at least not outside of the standard religious provisions for dealing with sin that have animals and blood and temples required. Uh, meantime, one does not simply... Forgive people's sins. Jesus. Jesus' words must have astounded the entire original audience there. Um, but also, amongst his hearers are these kind of teachers of the law, these religious professionals, these um, extra uh, educated students. And um, they are absolutely shocked about this. Jesus' ministry is definitely moving into stranger and more divisive things. The number of people who object to Jesus' healing are well, not that many. Jesus teaches interesting things on the Sermon on the Mount. People say, well, that's fascinating teaching. He casts out demons, and they're like, go away from me. And now he claims to forgive sin. And you can see the response of the religious experts here, these teachers of the law. Um, blasphemy, they say. And well, why is it blasphemy? You can't simply go around telling people that God holds nothing against them which is what it would mean to say sins are forgiven. Uh, in the other Gospels, laying out this story for us, they give us this uh, extra explanation. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Why can only God forgive sin? I was thinking about that. Because so often our sins harm others. 
So often our sins harm ourselves as well. How come only God can forgive them? Well, at the most fundamental level, when we sin, we've done something against God. We've crossed his line as the one in authority. We've um, transgressed his law. Like, like the way, think about this, okay. You might crash your car when you run a red light. You might injure yourself. You might injure other people. But you might run a red light and get away with it and not hit anyone. But it's illegal either way because you are breaking the law. There's a fundamental problem with the, the one in authority. The root problem is the one in authority and the way you're ignoring what he has to say. So Jesus' words are really shocking to these religious experts. Uh, is that because he's taking the place of God, forgiving sin, but they're not convinced that he has the right to do that? Well, it's not actually that clear. If you noticed, in his original declaration, it's not exactly clear what's going on. Your sins are forgiven is a, is, is a passive rather than an active. Jesus is declaring that something has happened to the man. He's not telling us anything about who did it. Your sins are forgiven. It's like me saying, you're being hit. But I'm not necessarily the one doing the hitting. I could be if you're really annoying. But just because, you know, I, I might not be the actor. So even if Jesus was just daring to imply that God has forgiven someone's sins, why, why do those religious experts call that blasphemy? Well, we shouldn't perhaps jump on them too quickly for doing that. I mean, is it really okay to tell people that God has nothing against them without checking in with God on that first. Uh, but if this was just a genuine concern they had for God's glory, for his honor, a concern someone might be acting inappropriately, stepping into his place, well, well Jesus shows us there's more to it than that. He, he talks about what's going on inside their heads, blasphemy. He says, you're entertaining evil thoughts as well. And he challenges them on their motives. Why? Like maybe they started with an appropriate question. Is it, is it really all right for Jesus to declare these sins forgiven? I'm not sure. We're not sure. Nobody's sure. But it seems in their minds it must have gone further. And now there are evil thoughts floating around as well, not just a, a rightly cautious response to a, a newcomer. And Jesus digs in this why, challenges them to look inside their hearts. What's their true motive for opposing Jesus? Why are they upset? about this? Why are they upset with the new kid on the block? Well, regardless of their opposition, almost to kind of rub their nose in it, Jesus comes straight at them to avoid any wiggle room, any shadow of doubt. He tells them he is going to demonstrate not just that their sins are forgiven, but that he himself explicitly is the one with the authority to forgive, not just declare that forgiveness on God's behalf. And he's going to do that through a clear and visible demonstration of his power, through this verifiable miracle of healing. I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, go home. See, it, it might be easy to declare your sins are forgiven. Well, who can tell? And just some words floating around in the air. Has anything really changed? Get up and walk. It's pretty verifiable, right? Either he's still stuck on his mat, still needing to be carried around by his friends, or he's up on his feet. No room for uncertainty there. It's all about to be made clear. You ever heard the phrase, show, don't tell? John's keen on telling me I should show, don't tell. We don't always just deliver facts and facts and add up the facts, but sometimes we demonstrate the truth of what we're doing. Well, that's what Jesus is doing here. This is a show, don't tell moment. He is showing that he's able to heal by his word alone restoring the man's broken body in front of everyone, in the middle of this huge crowd that has assembled. 
And he does that to demonstrate his wider authority to also forgive sins. Now, it's fascinating to me. We don't see how those religious leaders respond. We're kind of left by our writer, Matthew, with the opportunity to kind of imagine what happened next to them. Perhaps they're convinced. They're like, oh, fair enough. You really do have this authority. I, too, would like to become your disciple, Jesus. Perhaps they're confused. They're like, I don't understand how this can happen. Perhaps nothing at all is going to move their evil thoughts out of their heads, and they'll remain opposed in spite of the miracle in front of them. One of the one of the things we often wonder about is we, we feel like, you know, if only Jesus would do miracles right in front of us, we would absolutely believe right away. We would be done with all our questions. We'd never wonder ever again. But so rarely the case here. So many people saw Jesus do amazing things, heard him say amazing things, still turned uh, away from him. So don't, don't go thinking that. We don't know what happened to those teachers of the law. What we do know is what happened to the crowd that was watching. And the crowd that is watching, they gasp. They grasp that Jesus has been given such authority. Authority to heal means he has authority to forgive sins as well. Oh, do you know what we forgot today, John? We forgot our memory verse, didn't we? Shall we just sing it together now because it's memory verse time? Okay. Matthew 28. 18, just so you know where the reference is later. I'm going to have to hide this, aren't I, so you can't cheat. Hold on. Oh, gone. Okay. All authority. All authority. In heaven. In heaven. Let's go straight to the end. In heaven and on earth has been given to me. Matthew 28, 18. Well done, you. Sorry, we forgot that. Total oversight there. But we remembered it. Aren't we doing well? Good work, us. This passage is the summit of the demonstrations of the authority of Jesus that Matthew's gospel has put in a row for us to see. He shows us the different facets of that authority. If you remember, we started this journey with the authority to cleanse the leper, the untouchable, the unhealable cleansed. And then we saw the authority to heal. And then we saw authority to command the wind and the waves. We saw authority to send away and deliver from evil. And finally, we see at the top of the list this authority to forgive sins. But along with that, recognition of Jesus' authority. Did you notice what the crowds said about this? They were filled with awe, how they felt about it. More literally, they were afraid. Um, phobos is the word underneath there, like a phobia we get fear from. The crowd were afraid, quaking in their boots, terrified. Why do you think it is that this demonstration of Jesus' authority to heal and to forgive, why is that fearful in some way. I think it's totally logical, really, because if all authority on heaven and earth has been given to Jesus, and it has, they've just seen that demonstrated, if he is this promised Messiah, or like he told us at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he is the king of the kingdom, then he is the one welcoming us home into that kingdom, or he is the one who will turn us away from it. So our eternal life depends on his words, his say so. Without his hope, we have no hope. 
So really, this, all this fear is exactly the right response to Jesus' demonstrated awesome authority. It's a fearful all authority that he has. But I want to go back a little bit into the story here and think about the first shock, okay? So we talk quite a lot about why is this blasphemy? What does it mean to Jesus to have all this authority? I think really the elephant in the room is what's going on with this sick man. Jesus doesn't heal, at least not right away. He doesn't, see, he doesn't deal with what seems to be, for all the world, the most obvious primary problem that's right in front of his nose. Why? Why is that not his first stop? One way to think about this is perhaps sin and sickness are connected. If sickness is the physical manifestation of sin, then maybe Jesus is dealing with the whole package together, right? Maybe sickness is like the top of the iceberg and under the water you've got sin. Now, it is true, actually, that the Bible teaches sometimes sin results in sickness as judgment on it. Here's one example from the, the New Testament. Those that eat and drink, that's uh, talking about sharing bread and wine, remembering Jesus, without discerning the body. They eat and drink judgment. That's why many among you are weak and sick. So clearly there are cases in which sickness is directly connected to ignoring uh, and going the, the, the wrong way with God. And there are plenty of passages in the Old Testament. I just picked one out for you here, teaching the same thing, Leviticus 26. If you won't listen to me, I'll bring on you sudden terror, wasting diseases, fever that will destroy your sight. So again, you've got sickness is definitely sometimes an act of judgment. At the same time, the Bible rejects any universal connection between sin and sickness. It's definitely not always the case everywhere that sickness is a consequence of sin, um, that it's sickness is always judgment. Here's a, a great example for you. John chapter 9, verse 2, Jesus is asked about this by his disciples who are assuming this. Uh, who sinned? Somebody did, obviously, that this man was born blind. Who was it? Was it this man or his parents? So the disciples are presuming this connection and you know what Jesus' answer? His answer is neither. Neither. There's sickness there, but no sin in that case. So no universal connections. We've got to back away from that idea that always sickness means sins. Um, some commentators I read uh, flagged up the Jewish teaching of the time. No sick person's cured from sickness until all his sins have been forgiven. It's a little bit different. That's not saying that all sickness comes out of sin, but healing from sickness can't take place until there's forgiveness. So is Jesus like covering all the bases here, declaring forgiveness first as a necessary foundation before moving on to healing? I think the problem with that is if that's the case, how come we've seen so much healing up to here in the Gospels and no mention of forgiveness? If you had to prepare the way with forgiveness, how come? All of the sick in Capernaum have been addressed without us ever hearing this word. Jesus isn't just diagnosing sin based on the man's sickness as a symptom and going after that roof cause. He's not just forgiving sin to prepare the way for a healing. That doesn't explain why Jesus goes to it first. So all the things we've tried to understand, why does Jesus forgive sin first? He was going like, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. So we're none the wiser. And it is shocking. Perhaps it didn't ought to be. It is. But you know, do you imagine the sick man knew he had such a sin problem? Do you think he comes weighed down and burdened by it? Perhaps. Probably. I mean, he, he committed the sin. He did the wrong thing. 
Did he know it was his most critical problem? Did he come to Jesus secretly hoping behind the scenes that there would be some forgiveness for him? I doubt it. And put yourself in his place. Imagine, imagine what happens when Jesus starts to speak. Take heart. He's like, oh, yeah. Here it is. Here, here, here it comes. My legs back. My, my life back. And it's hard to believe that he feels anything other than crushed when Jesus finishes the sentence. Your sins are forgiven. He said, what? Who said anything about sins, Jesus? What I really need is to be able to walk. And we actually, we don't see the reaction of this paralytic who was healed either. We don't know what happened. Maybe he was so spiritual, he was like absolutely stoked. He was like, sins forgiven, yes, on his mat. You know, maybe he was super excited about it. But what would your reaction be? You brought your biggest problem to Jesus, the problem we started out with. You get to the front of the queue. Jesus is paying attention to you. He says, take heart. You're like, yes, this is it. My problem is going away. Your sins are forgiven. Would, would you be glad to have your sins forgiven yet the problem remain? I don't think so. Imagine being in that man's shoes. Imagine, imagine still being led on the mat the moment after Jesus speaks. What a feeling that must be. But Jesus knows what he's doing. Uh, and Jesus does have his priorities straight. Show, don't tell time again. What is Jesus showing us in this act, in dealing with the man's sins first and legs second? He's showing us which of those problems Jesus thinks is the bigger one. First things first. Even, even if you wouldn't call yourself his follower today, if you have any respect for Jesus at all, then you have to understand that Jesus thought sins were a bigger problem than legs. You have to hear the message he's delivering. Jesus thinks sin is the number one problem over everything. The number one problem any of us have, no matter how pressing everything else might seem. And remember that slide full of pressing problems. Like, we have a lot of issues. And yet sin is still the number one problem. And here's why. Like, imagine you've been diagnosed with some newfound superbug. The doctor in his white coat apologetically explains to you there is a 100% fatality rate. There is no hope whatsoever for an effective treatment. You, you are going to die. Well, that's sin, except you are going to die forever. Separated from God. Now, Christians, this should be the biggest thing in the world for us. Life, not death. God's child, not God's enemy. But we know the facts here. So often, let's be honest, it feels pretty incidental. It's like a bolt-on built into maybe our prayers, maybe a gathering, maybe when we share bread and wine to remember Jesus, sins forgiven. So often it feels pretty incidental. And we're much more focused. If you think about what I talk to Jesus about, what you talk to Jesus about, we're much more focused on the problems we feel, the problems we put on screen. We talk about anything and everything else. We talk about job, money, health, relationships. Honestly, is forgiveness regularly at the top of your list? I know it's not for me. I get so caught up in this life. And Christians, this should be big. How do we get perspective? I've been thinking about this. I, 
I don't think I have a brilliant answer. I had a hard week this week just trying to know how to teach this effectively. Um, how do we get a clearer heart grasp of this critical truth, not just a head grasp, not just the facts? I know the facts. How do I make my life work on this? It just seems to get stuck and not make it down into my heart. The Lord's Prayer, I think, is a little bit of a help for us. Jesus teaches us how to pray. This is a bit of a help for me. Jesus teaches us how to pray. I've got it up on the wall over here. And do you know what he tells us? He tells us forgiveness is the first thing on the our word list. First we focus on God and then we think about forgiveness. God's priorities, not our own. It's quite helpful. There's one more thing, though, I want to show you in the passage. Thankfully, even when we don't get it, Jesus still does. When the suffering man comes to Jesus, and I'm pretty sure he was coming, looking for his legs back, Jesus gives him what he truly needs instead, his life back. Jesus has the authority, and Jesus has the heart to forgive. When you or I come to Jesus most concerned about our savings, or most concerned about our relationships, our sufferings, all the problems which fill our lives. Still, Jesus is most concerned about our sins. And he still has the authority and the heart to forgive. He still rescues us from them. This is our phrase to take heart. Your sins are forgiven. He, Jesus gives us what we truly need, not, not necessarily what we want, not what we came to him for, perhaps, something to bear in mind when life is not going the way you'd like it. Not, not everyone gets this two-for-one treatment that the man does, right? The man gets his sins forgiven and then gets his legs back. Yeah, well, sometimes we just get our sins forgiven and our problems stick around. But Jesus does see us and love us and know us. He gives us what we truly need, and he does it for free. I was reading about this uh, Famous quote from Martin Luther, who's a 16th century um, reformer of the church. He says, the kingdom of Christ is simply the sentence, your sins are forgiven. That's a kind of kernel of what we believe. There are no works, that's nothing done, no merits, nothing earned, no commandments or law, but pure grace and kindness. Luther's point here is there's no evidence or suggestion that the paralyzed man had sorted himself out, turned his life around, turned over a new leaf, put things right. No evidence he'd done anything worthy of earning this forgiveness. No evidence really he even understood things well enough to ask for this as the topmost priority. It's grace, pure and simple, out of nowhere, Jesus declares forgiveness. Now, I know I've been a bit long this morning. Lots to cover. Time to land the plane. Do I have a problem. Yes, I do. Do you have a problem? Yes, you do. What is our problem? Our biggest problem is sin because it is going to kill us forever if Jesus doesn't get to it first. And the good news is we can come to Jesus and hear these same words, take heart. Your sins are forgiven. How come? Because all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. Now, maybe, just maybe, you've never understood just how big a problem your sin is. See it here. Jesus thinks it's critical. It's more important than not being able to walk even. Maybe you get it, but your problem just seems totally overwhelming to you. It's impossible that anyone could deal with the mess that you've made of your life. 
Or maybe you just think no one would ever want to deal with someone like you. Well, take heart. Because Jesus is here and he is still ready to save. Now maybe you've been a Christian for years, right? You probably know these facts. And you know what sin and forgiveness means in your head. But in practice, it feels like small beans compared to the other problems that still are there in your life every day. Well, let Jesus show you again this morning. It's the big one. It's the only one that will really matter in the end. And take heart because Jesus is still here, ready to save. Now we're going to pray together. If praying, uh, if it will be something new for you, you can start even today. Listen to what I say. If you like it, want to say the same thing, you just repeat it in your head to God and say, Amen, when we're done. Let's, let's take a moment to pray. Lord, you know us. Uh, you know us really well. And, um, you know, so often, even if we get the facts of the matter, uh, understand the rules and the logic, and uh, in theory, know that sin is a big problem for us, how rarely is it at the center of our heart, our core concern, the most important thing. And yet, you show us here that it is true life and true death. The one thing we really need, even if none of our other problems go away. Thank you, Jesus, that you care, um, that you encourage us, that you tell us to take heart. Thank you that you still have all authority and that you are able to declare our sins forgiven, to forgive them yourself. Forgive them yourself as you earned through shedding your blood on the cross, forgiveness for us. Oh Lord, please forgive us our sins. Help us to see and celebrate that this is the biggest thing. Amen.